0: This is Fuse and Focus Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi and welcome to Fuse and Focus. I'm Rebecca and today I'm joined by Peter. Hello. Jess. Hi. Jessica. Hello. Luke. Hiya. Serafina. Hello. And Fiona. Hiya. Today we're going to be talking about the undercover policing inquiry, fast fashion, anti-vaxxers in the age of COVID, the tier system, the student travel window, the Manchester Tower occupiers rent strike victory and a party in fallow field that went awry. Our first story on undercover policing is brought to us by
1: Peter. One of the UK's biggest police scandals, an inquiry into Britain's undercover police, has ramped up in recent months with evidence starting to come to the public eye and court proceedings commencing this November. Many are asking the question, will the public receive answers? The Undercover Policing Inquiry, or UCPI for short, It's one of the most complicated, expensive and delayed public inquiries in British legal history, as the BBC reports. The investigation centres on allegations of systematic abuses by so-called spy cops, that date back more than four decades, with the contentious issue focusing on the invasion of privacy by the police force upon the lives of its citizens, along with people coming forward in reporting abuses of power by members of the police while on undercover duty. The inquiry was officially set up in 2015 by then Home Secretary Theresa May after a series of allegations were filed against the police that May explained amounted to evidence of historic failings. Two undercover units are at the heart of the inquiry, the Metropolitan Police Special Demonstration Squad, SDS for short, which worked in London, and the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, which operated across the UK. Both units have since been disbanded. The police have been accused of spying on peaceful political activists and writing secret reports on members of UK Parliament. British officers had made extensive use of fake identities to join political campaign groups, compile secret reports. Some have gone as far with their undercover work as having romantic affairs and sexual relations with women they were sent to monitor, a few even having had children with them. The undercover policing inquiry is one of the most complicated, expensive and delayed public inquiries in British legal history, One of the most sensitive issues to be explored by the inquiry are allegations that multiple undercover police officers deceived women into sexual relationships while using fake identities. One undercover officer, Bob Lambert, fathered a child with his partner, an animal rights campaigner, before disappearing from their lives when his deployment ended in the late 1980s. Another major issue being tackled by the inquiry is the police's use of undercover officers to infiltrate political groups as well as intensive surveillance of private citizens. There are 200 core participants in the inquiry. They include women who had relations with undercover officers, justice campaigners, including families of victims of racist murders, political activists and left-wing groups and anti-capitalist movements, labour politicians, environmental protesters, including many people who have spent decades warning of climate change, animal rights activists and trade unionists who say they were blacklisted from taking work based on their political view. People were first beginning to uncover this deception about a decade ago. Now a public inquiry is underway in attempting to discover what happened. After finally getting underway in early November, the jury-led inquiry is looking at how at least 139 undercover officers spied on more than a thousand political groups over a period spanning back to 1968. So my first question um, to you guys is, what do you make of this blatant abuse of police power?
0: Uh, I think it's disturbing, but not entirely surprising, um, because it's obviously a pretty prestigious job title to have. And I think anything that involves an undercover identity, uh, it would be easy to kind of blur the ethical lines, um, especially in terms of relationships with women, as you described. I think that was clearly amoral, but they felt uh, sort of you know protected by their status and by having uh, a second identity.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. It, um, I heard the story on a report um, on the BBC Global News podcast, and um, they've been using actors, um, as in like voice actors, to record elements of the inquiry because um, obviously, like police uh, police officers' identities are protect- protected, and um, but but the go- uh, but the government and the um, the, um, the courts issue the um, like the verbatim transcripts of what is going on in the courtroom. And one police officer described having sexual relations with a woman that he was spying on um, and comparing it to a, an undercover police officer in a drug squad sampling the drugs that he's investigating. So he was like making it sound like the woman is a product that he's sampling. It was, it was very insidious kind of claims coming out. I'm
2: just a bit shocked yeah. by that actually, that's disgusting. Um, Yeah, that's really strange because I think it's not as if those people that list that you kind of said it doesn't sound like they're kind of criminals it just sounds like they're quite politically active in a way that doesn't necessarily suit the state um so it does sound really I don't know it's, it's quite almost dystopian that they're kind of putting this this level of surveillance on on people that are just expressing their views um and I was gonna say it it reminds me of um a kids book I read when I was like 12 um it's the cherub series like these undercover kids used to go like infiltrate people's lives and it's like it literally sounds exactly like that to me like it doesn't sound like it would be actually something that happens in real life and then to then add the extra level of those really quite horrible sexist attitudes Mm. it just is completely unbelievable to be honest with you like I I, it doesn't sound real to me but obviously I know it is yeah
1: that this is kind of leading to my next question because um This story is being kind of kept hush hush in mainstream media. So I was going to say, do you think we as the public deserve more clarity and publicity on this issue? Uh, As there are obvious examples of the police state invading the privacy of public citizens way beyond kind of the justifications that an investigation should have.
0: Yeah, there definitely should be transparency in terms of anything revolving espionage. And it's obvious why there isn't. But I do think it's massively hypocritical because Western countries like the UK and US tend to paint Russia, for example, as this sort of, uh, you know, this police state that polices its citizens and infiltrates their private lives when clearly this is an issue in the UK as well um, that the government's trying to keep undercover.
1: There's definitely there's definitely an element of hypocrisy when we see um Western nations kind of criticize, you gave the example of Russia, which is obviously a good example uh, where Russia's kind of, there's arguments that are made that it's effectively, effectively run as a mafia state. Um, so I feel like it's one of those classic examples of um, before we go, go around kind of lauding accusations, we kind of need to reform the mess that's back, back at home. And hopefully the inquiry is kind of a step in the right direction for addressing um, police abuses uh, in relation to kind of espionage
3: yeah completely and i think probably the parallel there would be um between russia is the fact that a lot of these uh, the people they're targeting doesn't seem to be particularly politically neutral it seems a lot of, like protesters environmental protesters i think there were some anti-racism protesters weren't there they might have yeah been ta- yeah
1: anti um, it was uh, an, an interesting Interesting one was um have you guys heard of the Stephen Lawrence murder case? So they um some undercover police officers kind of harassed um his family. So it was stuff like that as well. Sorry, sorry carry on, Fiona.
3: No, that's fine. I guess I would yeah, also say but when you're um calling it a step in the right direction, as you said in the introduction that it's been a while already that this um case has been going on for. I guess the worry with it would be that they're not just sort of kicking the can further down the road and trying to Mm. prolong the case and sort of simmer down the feelings behind it
4: yeah i mean i'm just looking into this story now because i actually haven't heard of this before uh, you raised it today peter and it did seem to me that a lot of the groups that the inquiry is focusing on about the undercover police um are tending to be left-wing groups uh, i'm just looking now um from the from what, what i'm reading here um for example there's the, the socialist party um earth first which i assume is an environmental group the Black Power movement, the Independent Labour Party. Uh, so these are left-wing groups uh, that the inquiry is looking into about undercover policing. And I just want sort to of touch on maybe the political implications of this. Obviously, that we see quite a lot of hostility between left-wing and right-wing groups, especially uh, since Brexit, but also um, just in, in since the Black Lives Matter campaign and movement, there's been a big hostility between left and right. Um, And especially on the left, uh, when we had the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a lot of hostility aimed at the police and how they've been handling the last 20 years um, when it comes to racism and racial uh, prejudice. So uh, this will probably continue to fuel the hostility that there is between left and right wing groups, seeing as the uh, inquiries is is looking into the fact that the the police has obviously been uh, acting undercover and targeting left wing groups.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think the first uh, recorded cases of political groups that were being infiltrated by undercover police in the UK were actually um, anti-Vietnam War activists and pacifists. So it just goes to show that uh, the fact that the police or that the UK government saw these activists as a threat, um, they thought they were going to undermine UK foreign uh, interests. So the UK wanted to keep uh, warmongering as they were.
1: I think a, a final point kind of tying together some of the things that have been said by, by everyone is the fact that these, um, these allegations, uh, like you said, Rebecca, it's from Vietnam, uh, anti-war protests. They're only coming out now, like they're being spoken about in the inquiry now. And as Luke was talking about with what's been happening more recently in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and lack of confidence to the police, like we don't know what kind of undercover police work is being engaged with those movements and how, activists uh, in current in contemporary movements are being surveyed and if abuses of power are like affecting them the fact that it's only coming out about what happened in the 60s 70s, 80s now is also a bit of a frightening concept in terms of what we don't know what is happening right now in terms of police espionage and stuff like that so I think that kind of just ties together this this story that's come out that has shocked us all.
5: Okay, so I think that leads on to our next story, which is what I'm talking about, which is Arcadia being shut down and also Pretty Little Things Black Friday sales. So there's been a lot in the news recently about the fashion industry from being in the pandemic and then now with uh, the High Street about to reopen after lockdown. And there's breaking news just today that Arcadia, the company which owns the likes of Topshop, has gone into administration. And this is the biggest British corporation to collapse so far in the pandemic. And fortunately, fashion retailer Boohoo is the potential buyer buy of some of Arcadia's groups, biggest brands, so that's Topshop. And in the past they have bought like Oasis and Warehouse, Caramellon and Coast. Um, and hopefully this will save a lot of jobs because obviously we've seen a, a real rise in unemployment over the pandemic. Um, so anybody that has bought clothes, a of, know a lot of students may have taken advantage of these sales, they'll be honored. But I think we have to wait and see what will happen with um, Topshop as a brand. But this brings up another story which went viral on social media this weekend surrounding the impact of Black Friday, especially concerning the online fashion brand Pretty Little Thing, who are selling dresses for less than 8p. And buyers on Twitter were quick to claim they'd purchased hundreds of pounds of clothes for less than a tenner. And this 99% off sale was extremely successful for those wanting to revamp their wardrobe for a cheap price. However, those who have more of an eco-conscious ethics towards shopping um, we're kind of criticizing this and wanting to support independent businesses because they're asking how ethical it was to be selling these clothes made in sweatshops, mostly in deprived countries, for little to no profit. So, Boohoo, Nasty Gal, Crystal Thing, all online shops have been boycotted in the past for their ethical fast fashion motives. And experts on fast fashion and sustainability have commented that this cycle of production and like keeping up with fast fashion is really kind of putting a strain on our uh, resources. And you forget the lengthy process that goes into making these clothes. So um, an intergovernmental panel on climate change calculated that we produce 10% of global carbon dioxide emissions every year from fast fashion and actually enough textiles to fill a rubbish truck gets sent to landfill or burned every second from fast fashion waste. So arguably we could see that fast fashion industry is taking it a bit too far concerning the environment, concerning budgets, concerning workers. And to sell these clothes at eight p, in contrast to all the damage they're doing, is kind of insulting. Um, So my question really is that if we are conscious about fast fashion, should we then be supporting small businesses? You know, not going to the high street, just looking at people who make ethical clothing, environmentally friendly clothing, or with the likes of Arcadia being um, going into administration and all these jobs being lost, do we go back on the high street and forget about the environmental section? There's this kind of debate now going on as to what we should do. Now the high street's gonna be reopening.
0: Well, I just wanna say that I agree that the flash sale Pretty Little Thing was an insult to garment workers as it placed so little value on the work done by them, especially considering their already low wages and subpar working conditions. And the fact that the Boohoo group defended the sale by saying it wanted to reward shoppers after a bleak 2020 shows that they only care about the consumers and about profit, but not about their workers. And surely their garment workers have had an especially bleak 2020 and deserve to be rewarded at least by having better working conditions. So I think we as consumers need to hold fast fashion companies accountable and maybe find uh, alternative brands, but uh, it's mainly up to the government to hold them accountable and they need to regulate these corporations more strictly.
1: I think just going off Rebecca's point um there's an important point to be made where, where I read an article recently which is talking about this issue about whether fast fashion is a class issue and we need to remember that for a lot of people in the country they can't afford um like when we're buying sustainable brands they tend to be a lot more expensive than fast fashion and there's a lot of people that can't afford kind of going into more sustainable forms of clothing uh, because they just simply they, 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 they don't have the budget to to support it and while the interest lies of the consumers to kind of uphold which um, which store they want to purchase from some people just don't have the accessibility of choice uh, as a result of economic issues so I think it's very much kind of something that needs to be addressed uh, within the institutions themselves within the government within um, companies which are producing these clothes one to be held accountable to pay their workers the correct wages but also to endorse more ethical and environmentally friendly policies because the consumers can't always do that if their economic circumstances don't match it.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think it is 100% a class issue. Um, But there is also the fact that, you know, if somebody who um, is economically worse off buys a piece of fast fashion and then makes that last for five years, that's ultimately more sustainable than someone who has a bigger budget and is buying more sustainable clothing, like, once a week. You know what I mean? So that's, it's the amount of um, consumption that one individual's kind of, putting out um into the world that is the sustainable aspect of it so i think you have to be like for some people that that sale would have been you know their only chance to kind of get some nice clothes you know if the, they couldn't afford a dress at like 20 pounds but they could at 8p which i think is fair enough but i think it the, the issue lies with people that who um maybe you know buying those clothes on the weekly basis anyway and are just kind of taking advantage of it because it definitely is like an insult to the workers that made it because if I mean, I I assume that the Boohoo Group still would have been making some kind of profit off of those sales. You know, they wouldn't have done it if they were going to lose massive amounts of money. You know, it's capitalism, you know. Um, So the fact that they're still making a profit off of an eight pence dress really worries me. Like if those dresses are literally worth less than 8p, then the workers just are not being paid enough.
5: Yeah, there's been some really great initiatives over lockdown as well to kind of support people, especially um, garment workers in Bangladesh. Who, when the pandemic actually started, so many of these big fast fashion brands were cancelling their orders, meaning that these workers then had no work because there was a there was a lack of demand. You know, shops were closed; they didn't need to be creating these clothes on, on such a high demand. Um, And there were initiatives where you could buy like a lost stock box. So the the stock that was meant to be going into landfill, you could buy. So I bought one, you got like a mystery parcel that came through your door about eight weeks later, um, and you paid I think, £35 and all that money went to pay a garment workers wage um, instead of the cancelled, I think it was for a, a week. So again, nothing um really for the garment workers I had to make these clothes and then also like Oxfam I think has said that they use any stock they have left over from charity shops in they recycle it all they use it in mattresses they use it in for car insulation so there are initiatives are not just they're not high enough up to make st- uh, like systematic change it's small organizations making these little contributions to kind of stifle fast fashion going too far
6: yeah I agree but um I also think I think it's Quite a cultural thing um, especially in the western world to sort of have this idea that we need to change our outfit every single time we leave the house Um, and it probably does come down to education for example if you didn't know sort of what went into making these clothes which I'm sure a lot of people don't then you just see AP and you think wow that's so good Um, but if you sort of understand the processes behind it and how much effort goes into making those clothes and also if you educate yourself on alternatives so if you look into smaller businesses that are a lot more sustainable and maybe a bit more expensive but then you plan what you're going to buy a bit more an organizer in a more sustainable way then that could have quite a big impact I think.
3: Yeah completely and I think that is sort of the issue is the whole concept of Black Friday and Cyber Monday and I think although Pretty little thing and brands like that have seem to have taken it too far it has raised a lot of awareness for how destructive it can be as a whole concept and the amount of products that are just being shipped out pointlessly and I think if it's done one thing good it seems to have like really highlighted that issue.
0: Our next story is on anti-vaxxers uh, as a response to the COVID movement.
6: Yeah, so I just wanted to speak about um, a problem that's arisen um, recently to do with coronavirus. So obviously everyone's really excited about the vaccine announcements and the prospects of finally returning to normality. Um, The vaccines are reported to be between 70 to 95% effective, which I believe is more effective than the flu jab. And this has allowed the government to really begin planning the exit strategy and how to roll out the vaccine. But concerns have been raised recently by the government about uh, anti-vaxxers. So the government um, is increasingly concerned that they could potentially undermine the prospect of herd immunity. A recent YouGov poll found that one in six Britons would be unlikely to agree to a COVID vaccine and a similar proportion are yet to make their mind up. Um, And this isn't just in England, this has been reflected in other countries. So 37% of Italians have voiced their resistance to the idea of being vaccinated. Um, So overall, there's a lot of hesitancy. And um, I think it kind of stems from two aspects. Um, I think the increase in distrust in science and experts, which was most prominent I'd say around Brexit, When the government kind of joined in um, with this sort of uh, tirade against experts um, and Michael Gove even quoted saying that the country has had enough of experts. And when that's combined with the idea of polarising social media algorithms, which really allows people to become so entrenched in their own views, it just fuels this kind of concern about how easily these ideas can spread. And scientists have predicted that, well, they believe that around 70 to 90% of the population will need to be vaccinated to prevent the spread of coronavirus. So this highlights how much of a problem anti-vaxxers could actually pose. Um, So anti-vaxxers have kind of always been around. Um, The most prominent example is the discredited doctor, Andrew Wakefield, who fraudulently claimed that the MMR vaccine led to autism and it led to multiple measles outbreaks in western countries where measles had actually previously been eliminated and uh, Covid has kind of bred this very fertile ground for these hoax and conspiracy theories um, and led to a vast range of theories being circulated. When I was researching this earlier um, these are just a few that I found so Um, Some people believe that the army is going to basically force everyone to receive it. Um, Some believe the vaccine uses an aborted fetus. Um, There's people saying that people have died in the vaccine trials and that the vaccine could turn people into chimpanzees. Um, And there's also the classic that Bill Gates is behind it and wants to inject everyone with microchips. Um, So scientists have explained that the vaccine, um, well, they've acknowledged that it is, it has been developed very quickly and it is the fastest developed vaccine ever. But obviously this is contextual because coronavirus is different to any other disease we've encountered before. I mean, it's affected every single person in the world um, and it's posed probably the largest threat. So of course, money is going, to be thrown at at creating a vaccine. And this has allowed scientists to have a lot of extra manpower. Um, They've been working longer hours and just basically increased efficiency. Um, They've also explained that the vaccine is actually a tweak to one that they've been working on for years. So it wasn't started from scratch and no kind of corners were crossed. It's followed the exact same process as every other vaccine we've had. Um, The only difference, like I said earlier, is just efficiency. And um, to debunk a few myths about uh, sort of capitalism and um, it all being a money-making scheme, the Oxford vaccine has actually made a no-profit pledge and will be prioritizing the less developed countries so the way the government are dealing with this is they've come up with a few ideas such as using public figures to um, endorse the vaccine and uh, using the British Army's information warfare unit to tackle anti-vaccine propaganda, the Minister for Vaccines, um, N- Nadim Zahawi, has also said that the jabs won't be compulsory, but that people could be people who refuse to get the jabs could be barred from public spaces such as restaurants and pubs. So my question is: Do you think the government are taking the right strategy by nationally addressing? problem or do you think that this just gives increased publicity to these damaging narratives because if these views are so entrenched it's probably unlikely that they can be changed
3: I think the important thing with um the views on this are not to dismiss people so quickly I think that as it becomes a much more polarizing effect and um it can tend to like change people more in the other direction which I think what they're trying to do at the moment, which is uh, be more informative and give out correct information without dismissing, listening to them and addressing the issues um, is a much more valid point. I mean, there are some more founded reasons behind it, like the, um, the speed with which they've been done, you can see how that could be quite concerning. And also with the, um, what the government have been trying to do recently with the apps that just seem to be failing one like, solution after another, um, you can see where the where the, where it's come from, but I think yeah, the important thing is not to polarize further and just dismiss all the opinions. I,
1: I completely agree with that point because I think that there is um, there is a dark side to this too where these kind of conspiracy theories like they get more and more ridiculous kind of the more they develop but there is is like ground for them that is quite rational and you can kind of like understand the perspective Um, we have seen with COVID the increase of big state governments have assumed powers on an unprecedented scale to track trace and control populations we've seen huge uh, ramping up of increased uh, state surveillance um, state control so like All these things naturally, and I also think rightly so to an extent, should make uh, the population feel anxious about what these powers and what these measures, how they will affect them and how they'll be enforced. So I think um, completely going off um, Fiona's point, um, it'd be more damaging for people to kind of discriminate and just ridicule uh, people's positions on this. It's better to have open dialogue because at least through open dialogue, um, education can occur. And also like as the population we can work together because there are elements of um kind of increased state surveillance and control that are worrying but in terms of the vaccination like obviously conspiracy theories can get ridiculous but it is important to kind of f- frame a conversation rather than just ridicule.
6: Yeah I definitely agree with that um I would say that there is a uh, sort of a new group has emerged that we probably haven't seen before which would probably previously have classed themselves as pro-vaccine but like Fiona mentioned because of the speed of this vaccine um, now they're kind of floating over to the other side but I do think they, they that group needs to be differentiated against from um, the full-on anti-vax group that, do, uh, that I believe sort of um endorse these damaging ideas and spread them in damaging ways um, and probably can't be convinced as easily as someone that's just a bit cautious and uncertain and doesn't really understand the facts behind it um, so yeah I just say that the, I agree with you but I would put them into two separate groups
0: I think it's interesting that anti-vaxxers are using the same arguments that were made 135 years ago during smallpox, uh, when an anti-vaxxer in Montreal first downplayed the virus, then made claims about the vaccine being either ineffective or causing illness, which sounds familiar. Um, And as we know, smallpox has since been eradicated, thereby debunking his arguments. But modern day anti-vaxxers risk undermining the eradication of COVID-19. And obviously, as people have said, the main difference uh, between now and then is that we have social media with which to disperse or propagate uh, misinformation much more easily. So these people do become entrenched in their echo chambers and in their conspiracy theories, and it'll be hard to address that.
2: I think it's just a matter of education for for both of those groups that you kind of outlined there. Um, I know I I wasn't ever like an anti-vaxxer, but I was a little bit like, how have they managed to get a vaccine in less than a year when it used to take like five but i read quite an in-depth article about it and explained like that it was the the carrier system that um that, again you mentioned and i was kind of placated by that so i think if somehow you managed to get the correct information out endorsed by more official sources people would be more willing to just accept it but as you said rebecca if people are getting all that info off social media and you know there has been not to use Donald trump's language you know happily but fake news there is so much out there um so if you're only exposed to that then it kind of makes sense that you're gonna be indoctrinated with those ideas so i think it's literally just a a, a case of getting government scientific advice out there more readily
4: yeah i mean i think peter you made a really good point there about um placing this uh, debate about anti-vaxxers and, and things in the context of state control um absolutely right i mean what we've seen over this this pandemic is the the biggest state control wide whole wide world state control um across the world that we've ever seen in history um and that no doubt would bring people to question the integrity of governments and the the truth the the honesty of governments as well and i think you also made a good point as well jessica about there being the two groups of people differentiating the opposition, the, um, the anti-vaxxers, uh, when one group being quite ridiculous in their outlook and then the others being just purely cautious due to the speed and time of the, the vaccine has been developed. I think that we need to place those two groups, um, again, in kind of historical perspective. When you have uh, things like these, these big events happening, you always have quite radical sections of society and quite moderate sections of society. Uh, and what we're seeing here is exactly that. Um, we're seeing the, the moderate opposition to uh these 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 vaccines um and then we're seeing the more radical opposition to them. Um so I think it's just a natural progression of history, is how I'm seeing this um anti vaxxer debate. Um but yeah, I think it's um I think it's very interesting to to look at from, from a political science point of view as well.
3: Yeah, there's a definite differentiation, isn't there, between so I think David Icke is one of the people that's sort of pushing it, isn't he? uh who obviously was um a big fan of the lizard theory as well um so there are some people that just sort of definitely yeah yeah tend to tend to back these theories more than others and although we have we seen mark zuckerberg's slit eyes um i yeah yeah it didn't convince me
6: yeah um just going back to your point luke i think it's what you're saying about the state is definitely important but i think maybe that's where the problem stems from because people associate the vaccine with the state when really it should be associated with scientists and experts because essentially it's the scientists that have been working around the clock to make this vaccine it's them that know the ins and outs of it the state are just the ones distributing it and yeah I think it's important to separate those two it's not really like the state didn't create this vaccine and it's understandable how people may believe they did but that's probably why people go down that route of thinking that the state of trying to control
4: them yeah i think um i think that's definitely true when you see um you know boris johnson doing his his uh press conferences alongside scientists it gives us this this impression that the scientists are therefore the uh, the branch of government they are part of government um which as you said is a real problem when it comes to uh coming up with with uh, or looking like there's, they're independent branches from one another, although they say they're government advisors, um, how much say do they actually have uh, within the UK government um, in, without stepping out of line? We obviously we've seen quite a lot of things happen over this pandemic of Boris Johnson um, being very clear that to his government advisors that they should take a, an official line when it comes to government policy and so uh, in a lot of ways people are seeing that as um, Boris Johnson incorporating scientists into government uh, which as you said can, can cause lots of problems and is exactly the problem that's being caused here.
1: I think tying, tying those two things together and one of our previous uh, shows when we spoke about um, the scientific advisory group for emergencies and how they've been working with the government uh, it's also the government's responsibility to kind of like, like you said, um, there, there's a distinction between science and the state in terms of the states distributing the vaccine and scientists made has, scientists have made the vaccine. But the thing is, they are inseparable uh, in people's minds in the sense that they see within the state distributing this, there can be insidious elements. And the way that the government can kind of do away with uh, these kinds of hoax, um, hoaxes and these theories is by being clearly seen as working hand in hand with SAGE. And as we've reported previously on this show and as we've seen since then and for a long time, the government hasn't been working effectively hand in hand with either the SAGE advisory group or with um, the two key scientific figures that that are in the group. But um, I feel like that kind of also contributes to a lack of confidence and ramps up theories when we have inadequacy within government.
2: Yes if you're if you've got the government who are going against scientific advice like they were at the beginning you know they didn't lock down as quickly as scientists were telling them to I think it it creates a sense of the government using science for a political means or for their own you know to fit it into their kind of manifesto um, which then creates distrust in in whatever they're doing because I know you know you were saying you you should have a, a separation between state and science but I don't think that there is at the moment. I don't think that's possible because the state are the ones that are kind of um, implementing the science, if that makes sense. Um, so I think that's where the distrust lies because they, although they kind of present this united front when the scientists and Boris talking together, in reality, it's Boris that's got the control there um, because he is the prime minister um, and he is he has that choice whether to, to implement what the scientists are kind of telling him to.
6: Yeah, definitely. And um, just quickly, what do you think about the idea of refusing entry to those that don't get the vaccine. So allowing people to choose what they want to do, but having those disadvantages whereby you're not allowed into public spaces.
0: I think that would just become highly contentious. Uh, I, agree the re- I agree with the reasoning behind that, but it would be difficult to enforce um, because naturally the uh, instinctive reaction would be that that's a violation of people's rights.
5: You'd ask, have to ask who would enforce that as well, like you were saying, like, we've all started wearing masks, we've never done that before, and had anti-mask protests, you've had all these, like, contentious attitudes towards having to wear a mask, um, and then being not allowed into public space if you're not wearing one, but I think it'll be the same sort of enforcement for that, that, that it'll have to be a government-controlled thing, because smaller companies and people don't want to take responsibility for, uh, you know, actions that aren't anything to do with them, really.
0: Luke is introducing our next story on the tier system.
4: Yeah, so uh, this week there's been a, a new story that's been reported uh, on BBC especially, and it concerns George Eustace, who is the Environment Secretary, um, and he appeared on LBC uh, a couple of days ago, uh, where he said that drinkers in tier two uh, areas would be able to order something as small as something as small as a Scotch egg with a meal. Um, He's told LBC that scotch eggs would constitute a substantial meal if there were table service. Um, The PM spokesman um, has replied to this saying that uh, he's not going to get involved with every detail possible uh, of every single meal, um, basically being uh, therefore being quite vague with his answer um, in response to what Mr. Eusis has been saying. Uh, He's reiterated the fact that bar snacks do not count as part of a substantial meal. So Having a packet of crisps, for example, uh, does not count a substantial meal. However, uh, Mr Eustace's comments um, cause quite a controversy because scotch eggs aren't a very big food item and therefore many people could see them as being a bar snack. The tier two regulations are obviously that that the pub should close at 11 o'clock and you can only socialise with people that you live with in a maximum of six uh, people per table. Um, And you can only, as as I said, order a drink with a substantial meal. Um, So there's been a lot of controversy about this because um, Boris Johnson made very clear in his speech about the tier two system and the tiered approach uh, that tier two would be different as it was last time. Uh, Obviously, Manchester was um, for a period of time in tier two um, before it went up to tier three. And uh, when we were in Tier 2, I, I distinctly remember being able to go to a pub um, and get a, a a meal and then get continuous amounts of uh, alcohol, uh, only having one meal, um, and but therefore taking advantage of the system, as many people did. So Boris Johnson was very clear to try and stop that from occurring this time. But obviously, Mr. Eustace's comments this week has, according to question, the ability to make it different from last time, people in tier two areas. Uh, so the questions that I have uh, for you, rest of you is, um, what do you make of the new tiered approach um, that we're seeing now um, across, the, across the UK?
0: I actually found the scotch egg thing quite comical in a life imitates art sort of way because there's an episode in Peep Show where they're caught on camera and shown on the news engaging in antisocial behavior, namely drinking. And Mark argues that he wasn't just drinking and that it was a picnic because they had not only three flavors of crisps, but scotch eggs. So I guess he didn't get the memo that those are bar snacks. Anyway, I just found that really funny and weirdly specific to this particular story.
5: <laughs> I, I actually really feel for independent businesses and people trying to open up again right now because you can't the is saying like you, you want to try and work out what substantial means you need to to know how to open them um, i remember last time there was a place in manchester called the common bar who the police came and shut them down for serving slices of pizza but they're known for serving huge slices of pizza which then were confirmed as a substantial meal but because they weren't a full pizza were first considered a substantial meal so there's just all these conflict of what What? What actually is it? And I just really feel for the people who have had to shut, had no business, and then a reopening, don't really know what they're doing, don't really know what they want to abide by the law, but don't know how. And then if they do break it by, you know, thinking a scotch check is substantial and not thinking it is, they'll be slapped with these fines. And I just think there should be such more guidelines for hospitality. They, they say hospitality so much, but they don't specifically say cafes, restaurants, hotels, all these different, you know, different types of hospitality that are just never mentioned and given kind of rigorous plans on how to reopen. It's so vague. And yeah, I really feel for them at the moment.
1: I just think like that, that going back to this whole scotch egg thing and I think the Peep Show reference was quite quite a good one to be made there. But I've just, I've just been looking through the stories like by literally typing in scotch egg on the news. And we've had Michael Gove getting into a full blown debate about whether a scotch egg constitutes a starter or not with him arguing that he thinks it does. And like, it's just so farcical, and I think an element of this farce that's being so widely distributed by the media right now, it does just completely kind of erode from what you've been speaking about, Jess, in terms of what we need to address is actually the government uh, putting out definitive policies and guidelines of what constitutes a substantial meal for how small business and well in general just any business in terms of the the food industry should conduct its policies regarding covid and the fact that there isn't there aren't these guidelines just puts us into well us um, well big business into further mess and and small business and like the fact that media is focusing on the scotch egg just completely removes the significance from the conversation that should be had yeah I yeah oh
3: sorry okay yeah I completely agree I think the whole I think the whole rule was never gonna work from the beginning it was put in place to support these businesses and um only seems to have worked the other way I think a lot of places have closed anyway because they don't know what the rules are they might get shut down if they try and um, work around work with them or work around them um, and I just think they really should be doing more to support them it is ridiculous I heard from a friend there were some places in gay village I think that some bars that um, started selling beans on toast as their substantial meal. <laughs> so I think place have been trying to, but I don't know how well it's
6: Yeah, and I think a massive problem, from what I've understood about this, is that the government have consistently said that a substantial meal is a well-known term in hospitality because to serve um, someone underage, they, ha- they have to drink alcohol with a substantial meal. But it just seems like the government have lazily made that assumption that everyone understands what that means. But from what I've heard about the restaurant industry, they don't really know what that means. And bars and pubs especially, they don't know what that means either. So it's just this sort of assumption that everyone understands what the government's speaking about, but definitely needs to be more clarification. And I also, to be fair um, to the government, I also did feel a bit bad for the environmental secretary yesterday. i was listening to that on the nick ferrari show and he was really um sort of poked by nick ferrari consistently asking him what constitutes substantial meal and then nick Pro went on to say is it a scotch egg is it a scotch egg could we have a scotch egg and i think he just sort of gave up and said yeah um so yeah and then suddenly when i went on the news it was there's about 10 stories on scotch eggs
4: yeah i mean we've all kind of seen therefore that these things uh, this this Tier two approach will be abused by many people who, or many many people who are trying to make ends meet, um, but also uh, don't understand the government required requirements. Um, but um, obviously, the idea of this this tiered approach is to try and reduce case rates. Uh, we saw that um, Manchester, which has one of the biggest um, a number of cases, across the UK, has been put into tier three, whereas London, which uh, although has a small amount of cases has a higher r rate was being put in tier two um so will these rules these tier two rules and this um the these requirements put forward by boris johnson will they have a big impact on the case rates that in, in those tier two areas do you think
5: i'm not sure because we've had sasha lord talking who is a nightlife manager for manchester I think that's his title um making kind of stating on Twitter he's been really championing these small businesses over lockdown and looking at the fact that other things are open um, but you can't go and have a coffee with somebody it has to be like Perspect screens there's so many of these things in place for cafes and small businesses you know going back to this kind of scotch egg substantial meal scenario that it just seems a bit unfair and these smaller businesses who don't maybe have the money to reopen and do things properly are being shut down and Yes, it could have an effect on it could lower cases because people aren't going out, but larger chain companies are still doing the same thing. You know, use this for an example, you prep subscriptions. The queues are so long on Oxford Road and um, they're not two metres apart. That's that's dangerous in itself. But prep can afford to do this, whereas small businesses then don't get the. There's an there's a independent cafe just next to it. They get no traction whatsoever. And. It, it doesn't make sense because it shouldn't matter with the cases. It should be supporting the small businesses then looking at how we can reduce the cases as well.
2: Yeah, I well, feel like if people are gonna go out for a, a pint with a substantial meal, they were gonna go out anyway. So it's it's not necessarily helping the case rates. I think it's just kind of making a token gesture to keep the economy going, but also sorry, um, make this token gesture to keep the cases down. Um, Because I think if you, the only way to fully get the cases really, really low is to completely lock down, but they've shown that they're not willing to do that. And, you know, the economy won't benefit from that at all. Um, So I I don't know. I think it's just making maybe not the best of a bad situation, but trying to do something with a bad situation. And on the subject of Sasha Lord, he
0: was actually trying to connect the dots and fill a gap in the market. Um, when he realized that there were these pubs or hospitality industry establishments that were struggling to provide substantial meals. So he was looking into bringing them together with independent festival food traders and has urged uh, businesses to contact info at gecuk.co.uk uh, to get involved and partner up with other businesses.
3: Okay, so on the 25th of November, UOM Rent Strike and 9K for What have announced a victory for their campaign ending the occupation of Owens Park Tower. The university has committed to a 30% rent reduction for the first semester. According to the University of Manchester website, they will uphold their pledges from the previous agreement including more flexible uh, accommodation agreements, better maintenance support, tackling antisocial behavior, better study spaces. Uh, The university has said that the total reduction equates to 4 million pounds, which is thought to make it the largest ever rebate secured uh, the largest ever rebate secured by rent strike um, following, yeah, following, secured by students following rent strike. Um, however, Nike for what, and UOM rent strike are claiming the figure is close to 12 million. The organisations are still pursuing the cause, continuing with the rent strike until January to secure further rebates and organising protests to campaign for tuition fee cuts, the next of which is on the 4th of December. They have since started a petition, which has allegedly gained over 400 signatures in under five hours, which is the amount needed to trigger a possible non-binary vote of no confidence in Na- Nancy Rothwell and her governing staff. Um, so last week we discussed um, a lot how successful we thought the occupation was going to be. Um, and obviously since and they have claimed this victory. Uh, what do we think of the promises that the university have made? And do we think this does count as a victory?
1: It's a step in the right direction of kind of addressing the fact that the university isn't purely a money-making institution and there is a need and now there is a voice um, which demands to put students and staff before profit which was one of the banners that they were raising on tower which obviously was making that poignant point um but i do think regarding the um the vote of non vote of no confidence with nancy Rovo and kind of like her future it is important not to just scapegoat Nancy Rothwell as kind of like being this this like dramatised person that kind of has made all the ills that have befallen the University of Manchester because she's not, this is obviously a systemic issue within the institution and there's a whole board behind Nancy Rothwell and there's a lot of other people that need to be held accountable and also that need to be spoken to to address the issues. I feel like just removing Nancy Rothwell won't do away with the issues that have played students at the university for years and years
2: yeah I think um in the interview she did with um Josh for our special episode um she said she didn't know who had actually erected the fences that caused such a massive you know kerfuffle a few weeks ago um so it's definitely not her fault specifically but I think it's just an issue with like the the relationship between the student body and the senior leadership team at this university I think the last few weeks has really shown that you know There's there's a lack of communication and a lack of understanding of what each party wants. I think Um, so. I think that's something like a wider issue within the culture at UOM that needs addressing, rather than just Nancy Rothwell. Um, But I don't know. I when I saw the news that they'd kind of got this this huge return back on the rent, I was really shocked. I was not expecting the university to actually say that they do that. I wasn't expecting you know them to increase their offer of. I think they said was it five percent initially I wasn't expecting them to to go much over that at all so to go back to 30% it was actually shocking to me and I, I think they're finally I don't know whether it's because they're finally accepting the fact that you know students haven't been treated particularly well this semester or if it was a oh no we've had a lot of bad press and we need to do something that looks like you know it's um it's it's good for once I don't know where the balance lies between there um but I, I think it's a good thing that such a, a huge reduction has been made.
0: I think it reflects really well on students and you can't undermine the strength of students coming together. Uh, so we need to keep pushing back. Um, yes, there's a lot of bad press, but as I've said on previous episodes, um, it really just shows the resilience of the students. And I find this particular story really inspirational because we are capable as students of more than we think.
3: Yeah, I admit you agree um i think there's been some confusion about some of the um pledges that they've made i think the maintenance support pledge of uh to quote the union of manchester website will fix your problems in the promised time scales uh confused a few people as it seemed to be what the uni should be doing anyway but i think yeah apart from them i think the uh the money that they managed to get back is amazing um Do you, and yeah, obviously Peter touched on there, the um, vote of no confidence. Would you guys be willing to vote in this? It would be another another SU vote um, open to the whole student body, apparently, obviously with the success of the occupation. Do you think that this vote of no confidence in the um, governing body would be as successful? And would you guys be willing to participate in this vote?
4: I think that um, the vote of no confidence, uh, I think many students will see it, um, as uh, definitely a step in the right, right direction in terms of getting holding the university to account for what many will see voter no confidences as a, although it's a step in the right direction is not the full uh, get to uh, find out what actually happened what went wrong to rectify the mistakes that have been made so I think that this is part of a um, of a wider problem and I think I don't think that this alone can cure it however I would say that um, I think the majority of the student body will get involved in this I think it's going to be promoted extremely um, well by uh, not only the campaign groups but by students union itself um, so I can see this being quite a, a big turnout uh, hopefully if it does end up as a referendum opportunity uh, as you've mentioned
1: I said, though, I don't think that uh, removing Nancy Rotherwell and kind of treating her as a scapegoat for all the ills that have plagued the university will do much to address the issues. It's about addressing the issues within the institution itself. From within the board of trustees and within members that are see she is the face as the vice chancellor and she conducts the day-to-day business because the chancellor plays more of a symbolic role but there is a whole infrastructure like institution behind her that live alongside of her that needs to be addressed and I think it, it might even lead to a situation that if Nancy Rothwell is sacked then it kind of the situation just gets brushed under the carpet and everyone will be like okay well Nancy's gone um let's just like it's all sorted now and it just resumes business as normal so I think that there is danger in kind of treating her as this scapegoat and removing her uh, and nothing just happens afterwards.
6: Yeah I definitely agree with that but I'd also add that um it could possibly uh kind of remind those higher up so Nancy herself and others that they're not completely untouchable and maybe now they'll be a bit more on their toes you know and they're signing things off and checking through things and actually paying attention to their jobs as opposed to just being quite dismissive of it um because this has shown that everyone is now accountable to their own actions I mean although it wasn't all Nancy's fault she technically should have been aware of what was going on that was part of her job so Um, Yeah, I do think it kind of highlights that now everyone's going to be a lot more attentive to what their responsibility is and making sure that they're accountable to everything that happens under their name.
0: Serafina will be talking us through the student travel window and university sponsored
2: testing. So this week we've seen the beginning of the university mass testing um, ahead of the travel window that the government have put in place from the 3rd to the 9th of December. Um, So you've probably heard about what's going on. There are four testing facilities uh, around campus. There's one at University Place, one at Sackville Street, one at Owens Park Great Hall and one at Owens Park Little Court. Um, So hopefully one near to most of the student population. Um, So you're supposed to take two tests 72 hours apart before you travel home Uh, and fingers crossed those are both negative. If one of those are positive you're supposed to isolate and get a normal PCR test, uh, which is done through the NHS, so the ones that people have been doing normally. Um, And yeah, so far they seem to be working quite well. I know a couple of people have been tested um, over the weekend and today, and the results seem to be coming through really quickly, so within an hour some people have been getting them, uh, which is really impressive. Uh, And this is actually quite different to a lot of other universities so not all unis have actual testing facilities I think the government kind of targeted certain universities which had particularly high cases um, or particularly high student populations so Manchester is one of those Um, and I've also got some vox pops from Elise at Durham where they've piloted the testing so she's talking a little bit about what's going on at Durham
7: so I'm Elise I'm an English student at Durham University and I'm in my second year the the lateral flow testing which is the test that you can get in 30 minutes Mm -hmm. i know they've been testing it for a couple of months now and now it's obviously been rolled out to more places so in each college there's a big tent that's been erected for testing facilities and for livers out there's also a few central places where you can get the test i've not had a test yet i had to do some training um to be able to receive a test to do a video and a quiz and so i'm eligible for a test but i haven't decided i'm going to have one yet yeah, so there's a five minute video and then a like 20 question test that you have to get 80% on to be able, able to do the test. I know one person who was involved in the trials when they initially rolled them out, mm-hmm. but no one yet who's had a test to be able to go home. It's been pushed quite hard by individual colleges and by the uni, I think, but there's kind of a reluctance from students because once you've had the test, if it is positive, you obviously can't go home. I know that it has been particularly bad. I'm not sure what the current numbers are like. Um, I think a lot of it is varying how much people are going out. And there are people who kind of still are going out and still are seeing people. And I think they kind of don't want to have tests because mm. they can only really get bad news from it. I think the uni is doing a pretty good job at promoting it. Um, I don't think many people are going to end up actually having the test before they go home. Just because people are so tired and so desperate to go home at this point. that there's only really so much they can say. Because they're ultimately relying on students opting in. Mm. Unless they made it compulsory, I don't think they'll be
2: able to get everyone to do it. Right, OK. And also we've got Michaela, who's at Liverpool University, where they've obviously had a mass city-wide testing provision. Um. So she's talking a little bit about her testing experiences as well.
8: Hi, my name's Michaela and I'm a second year vet student at the University of Liverpool. We've been really lucky in Liverpool because we've had access to it. Um, mass testing pilot scheme since the beginning of November and I think this has definitely taken quite a bit of pressure off university to try and come up with a new test system for students for Christmas because they already had a system in place when the travel corridor was announced a few weeks ago Um, I've used the mass testing site facilities quite a few times and they've actually been really well organised so in the beginning you had to you had to book a time slot but now you can go whenever you want and all you need to do is register your details on the government website and then do the mouth and nose swab and then you get results in half an hour which i think is pretty incredibly efficient also there, there are loads of testing sites in the city and in walking distance from me they about four which makes it very convenient for most people to try and get tested as frequently as they want um the only thing with the mass testing is I think it might have made people slightly less compliant with the lockdown rules because even if they test negative they may still be incubating the virus and are just yet to show an immune response to it even if they are to go on to become asymptomatic um so maybe if the testing um scheme wasn't going on people may have locked down a bit harder but being at university people aren't going to follow rules as closely as they were in march when we were all at home i've been pretty lucky as a vet student as well because i've still had face-to-face teaching Uh, i've had well i have five sessions this semester um and they've been pretty intense with full pve and face shields but I've gone used to it and it definitely, I'm definitely really grateful to still have had some contact with my department because I know there are many students across the country and in my university as well who haven't had to go on campus this semester. Um, to be honest, the university's actually been pretty good at communicating to students their uh, coronavirus policies, and that's probably because Liverpool was so badly affected in September, so they had to have a current policy to, to make sure students knew it was safe to return to campus on in September. Um, yeah, so all in all, I'm pretty happy with how this semester has gone in Liverpool.
2: So, um, I just wanted to ask quickly a bit of discussion about whether what you think the university is doing about testing if you think they're doing it particularly well. I know that some people have said that the uni is not publicizing the testing provision enough so some people who don't you know check emails or don't follow your um, um, social media channels might not actually even know about the testing provision which is obviously not great because they might be going home with uh, coronavirus and infecting people Um, and it, I don't know if that kind of is telling of a wider lack of communication across the uni, but I, I don't know, I've seen quite a lot of stuff around. Um, and personally, it's been pushed quite a lot to me, but I don't know if that's just because, you know, I, I do keep up with the news presenting a new show and I follow quite a lot of UOM social media channels. Um, so yeah, what, what are people th- people's thoughts on that? I definitely
3: think I've seen a lot about it. I think it's been quite well publicized, like you say, with emails. I think I've seen ads for it on Facebook even, I guess, targeting um, students here. So I I couldn't, I couldn't fault it with that. I think that it has actually been very good at spreading the word on it. And like you say, if they're getting results back within an hour, I think that's actually incredible for uni, which is great to hear.
0: Well, I personally haven't booked a university sponsor test because I'm leaving later in December and it would defeat the purpose to get tested weeks before traveling. And I don't believe the university has put out a lot of information or advice for international and EU students presumably because once we leave the country we're not seen as the university or the UK's problem because whatever happens when we're abroad we won't be a strain on the NHS.
1: Kind of as a midline between Fiona and Rebecca's point I think that there's been like a decent amount of um of information like via email and stuff like that but um the university have access um, they have our phone numbers in terms of like if you uh, have like a book to collect or um, like just in general like library kind of formats you can receive texts like I have in the past I think they could definitely utilize a texting platform which will ensure that everyone at least once gets a message to like really hammer it home but yeah um, in terms of kind of Things we've been talking about uh, that the uni has come under criticism I don't think that they've handled this too badly but then I don't know kind of the internet the international student dynamic like Rebecca has raised so obviously there, there is a kind of a flip side to the coin
4: I think that's absolutely fair to um, to say Rebecca I don't know what the situation is for international students I actually got a test this morning at university place um and it came out as negative so that was really good um, but, um, yeah, I thought the process was actually very, very good. Uh, when I walked in, uh, there was people that were working in the building were very, very kind, um, made you feel very at ease if you hadn't done it before, because I'd never had a test before. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was done very, very well, I have to say. Um, the booth was very comfortable to, to be in. Um, and then they also gave out free um, – you could sign up for a free antibodies test as well, so um and that took about five or ten minutes just to sign up and they'd only they only let you through once you've signed up for the actual test itself but they give you time to also um fill in the form for the um the antibody test as well so yeah that was really good so you get a free antibody test as well as your actual um normal tests so yeah i think the process is actually very very good uh the booking system i hadn't didn't have any problems with either. Um, I think the only thing that you, as, as Peter mentioned, is, is the advertising, the actual tests themselves. Uh, I think it's so important that every student who does decide to go home for Christmas has a test. Um, but yeah, just kind of pushing forward that, that point of, of tests. Um, I know that university emails can be quite, uh, quite long to read. And especially when you see a university email from like UOM, whatever, you kind of just look at it and don't really pay attention to it. Um, so I think maybe doing it through other channels would probably be, be more useful um, but yeah I have to say um, the university have done it done very well on this so far.
2: There's also the issue of whether people will actually take the tests slash you know um, obey the regulations if they get positive tests so I've uh, spoken to a couple of people who I know personally in, in my house everyone is getting a test before they go home or being quite careful about it but um, as I said like it is a it is a choice thing Like and some people Aren't, are choosing not to get tested um i think the government were kind of relying on the fact that people will have obeyed the lockdown rules over the past four weeks obviously yeah so when the show airs will be out of lockdown um so in theory that kind of four week period should have minimized cases and obviously we haven't had any face-to-face provision uh, or very little face-to-face provision at manchester uni um so there hasn't been as much kind of mixing of students so hopefully fingers crossed people mostly will be negative. Um, but again, that kind of depends on whether people are going to test because um, you know, if, if they suspect they might be positive, they might not want to test. So they'd have to um they'd have to wait before they go home. Um and also if people didn't obey lockdown rules, that might not translate to kind of as few cases as people were expecting. Um so yeah I was just kind of surprised basically that the union government kind of managed to put together such a a huge undertaking so quickly I think the fact that they didn't really even say anything when we all moved back to union kind of September time um, I was very surprised that uh, they had to put provision in place to actually you know sort out the movement of about a million students around the country so I was pretty impressed with that and it does actually look like they're thinking about what's going to happen in January too when we all come back um, so the, the government website says that they are looking to utilise mass testing to make the return to higher education as safe as possible and they will provide further guidance in due course considering future developments and the relevant scientific advice so it's very vague you know there's nothing specific but it does sound like they have actually taken into account you know the movement of students and I think it just depends on the students themselves to kind of follow that guidance and hopefully ensure that there's not a massive outbreak when we'll go home.
0: Uh, Following on in university news, last week there was an illegal lockdown party at a flat in Unsworth Park accommodation in Fallowfield, Uh, and there had been reports of issues with many of the doors at Unsworth with doors locking unpredictably or alarms randomly going off, and when maintenance was informed of these complaints, they allegedly told students that it wasn't urgent. So the party had around 100 attendants some of whom are said to have fainted due to stress and overheating while waiting for someone to open the doors after a fire alarm went off and the party goers were trapped inside. Uh, one girl tweeted footage from the incident showing chaos and confusion and said, security thought they were refusing to open the doors. So students had to call the police and fire department themselves who were ultimately also unsure on how to handle the situation and asked people to FaceTime their friends who were trapped inside to get more information. Uh, so this was obviously a claustrophobia and nerve-wracking experience for students involved, and firefighters did eventually use an axe and a sledgehammer to break down the door. Um, And a U of M spokesperson has since said that safety checks were being carried out, but also reminded students that large gatherings were illegal under the current restrictions. I've seen Facebook posts and comments condemning the attendees for breaking COVID restrictions and for putting the wider community at risk, which I obviously completely understand, But I don't think these observations should undermine the fact that this was a major safety hazard that was ignored by the university and that it could have resulted in injuries or even fatalities had there been a real fire. Uh, So it's once again a case of neglect from the University of Manchester. So what do people think? Are the students to blame for what happened or that regardless of their actions, the university needs to be held accountable? I don't think
5: the university, the students e- either are to blame in this situation. Obviously, they went for a party, but regardless of the party, what you're saying, it was a serious safety hazard. And I know I have a friend in under at the moment and her doors weren't working when she first moved in and they couldn't actually lock their doors. So, again, another safety issue where they couldn't actually lock their flat door. Um so there have been a lot of issues in what's meant to be the flag, you know, the best accommodation in, in University of Manchester. This new kind of snazzy place to live is a lot more expensive. Um, it's actually causing a lot of problems for residents there. And I also know with the party as well, it kind of obviously it didn't just impact those who were at the party; it impacted the rest of the people in Umdes as well. So it it impacted a lot of people because there were obviously fears of what was actually going on um so I think yeah in a way the students shouldn't have been at the parties but we've already spoken about how students have been uncontrollable in this pandemic we could the security haven't been able to stop parties happening um it was up to the university just to make sure that while we're in halls people felt safe and secure like with the safer protest you know this is what they wanted they wanted maintenance they wanted to feel safe they didn't want to feel like they're in a prison and I think it is ironic that they were locked in um so yeah I think it's an interesting story where the university could have done a bit more just to even in the publicity way to make sure they were putting student safety as a priority
3: yeah i've heard similar things with people that were in unsworth last year as well who had um faulty doors and they couldn't lock their doors which is obviously again a safety hazard and that was a year ago they still obviously haven't um haven't done much about that and i think it's really telling as well i think you said then rebecca in the introduction that um some students inside the party thought that the university was locking them in or the university had, was trying to like t- i'm not sure i'm i'm not sure but um yeah i think it's really telling that there's obviously like a complete lack of trust between the students as there as well but like you say they shouldn't have been having a party but it's i don't think it's their fault it, there could have been five or six people in that room and it could have been a huge huge accident
6: yeah i I definitely agree with all of that. Um, I think it obviously highlights a uh, wider issue um, and it's one of those things that sort of have probably been on their list to attend to for a while now um, on, the, on the university list, I mean, but they've just kept putting it off and now this has happened and it's raised attention to it, but, um, which is obviously all the university's fault. But I do think it's a bit um, kind of upsetting that i guess the publicity um that surrounds this is also publicity about an 100 person student party just because it could potentially sort of undermine um all the efforts that the students at the university of manchester have been putting into kind of raising all these issues and um now to have sort of all over the news this 100 person party in the headlines and stuff i do think it's a bit kind of frustrating that that's how it had to come out
0: it is a huge relief that this incident didn't result in serious injuries and hopefully it'll be a learning lesson for both students breaking covid restrictions and for the university neglecting maintenance complaints thank you for tuning in and once again a special shout out to johnny hunt for producing the show that's it for now you're in focus